Well, good morning. morning. (laughs) Hey, it's good to see you guys. Thank you. Hey, it's good to be back. Let me, uh, so for those of you who don't know, my name is George Davis, and my wife and I, Rose, had just the privilege uh, to kind of have some time away this summer in a time of sabbatical, really a time to rest and recharge, and we just want to... Say our appreciation for that time. Much of our time away this summer was uh, at a place called Tyndale House, which is a library for biblical research in Cambridge, England. And for me, that was just a, just a, a good time to read, study, thinking about some of the things we're going to be doing here. It was also a time for us to reconnect with some friends. We were there in the 1990s when I was a student there, so just a great reconnecting time. And i got to be honest with you, one of the reasons I love working at Tyndale House in Cambridge is in that group of people, I'm like the least nerdy guy. (laughs) When, When you hang out with people that can actually read cuneiform script on a clay tablet, you're like the cool kid. So it was, it was a great experience for us, and uh, while much of our time was spent there, we did do two additional trips while we were overseas, and I'll just tell you a little bit about these, because the, the trips were very different, but what they had in common was we, we spent some time walking through fallen empires. Uh, in June, we spent a few days in the Channel Islands uh, off the coast of France. I'll show you the map, the islands of Jersey and Guernsey. If you're not familiar with these islands, they're actually under the, under the oversight of England, of the United Kingdom, and they were the only part of England that was occupied by the Germans during the Second World War. I enjoy uh, U.S. military history and World War II, so this is part of the reason uh, we made a trip here. And when the Germans occupied the Channel Islands in 1940, uh, they began a massive building campaign to fortify these small islands. And so part of what we did, we, we actually toured a lot of military installations. They built miles of tunnels and underground installations like this. This is part of an underground hospital. They built numerous large bunkers uh, throughout these islands with just walls six feet thick of concrete. That's the outside. I'll just show you the inside of of one of these bunkers. (laughs) By the way, my wife will tell you, just an FYI, my wife will tell you uh, if you've seen one bunker, you've seen them all. So And also they built large observation towers. This is a seven-story military observation tower that they built. And this is a view looking out from that tower. So we spent just several days there early in our travels. And at the end of our travels, we went to someplace very different. We went to the western end of Turkey. I'll show you a map. We were primarily there to visit the sites of the seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. And we'll be doing a series on those seven churches later in the year. And I'll show you more pictures then. But uh, so we were visiting kind of the remains of uh, the Roman Empire in Western Turkey. And you tour these ancient cities and you just get a, a glimpse of how powerful and how ingenious the Roman Empire was. You walk through ancient temples and you uh, see other kinds of uh, Streets. This is a place called Hierapolis. You kind of see massive structures like large theaters. We visited, of course, these places that are very famous historically. This is Ephesus, a library there, and you'll see kind of one of those statues up close. And then this is 
uh, the main road going through Ephesus leading to the theater, then ultimately to the harbor. And I walked that street just thinking about people like the Apostle Paul walking that street. Now, those were two very different trips, but here's what those two trips had in common. If you had been in the Channel Islands in 1942, or if you had walked the streets of Ephesus in 42 AD, it would have, it would have been easy for you to kind of look around and just go, wow, this is, this is the only game in town. I mean, in 1942, the Channel Islands were arguably the most fortified place on earth. And you look around and it's just like, The German Empire, this is it. This is where all the power is. This is the story. Likewise, if you had been in in the streets of Ephesus in 42 AD to see these massive buildings, this theater, these these large shopping areas, the, the civil district at the top of the city, it would have been natural to say, you know what? The Roman Empire is the only game in town. This is where all the power is. This is the end of the story. And yet, as it turns out, there were other forces at work. Both of those empires fell. And, you know, I think even today it's possible for us to look around and simply it's possible for us to focus and and, and just uh, look around and see negative trends in culture, chaotic political realities, and just think, well, you know what? This, This just is the way things are. This is the end of the story. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, I think we can fixate on certain negative stories and think, well, this is, this is just the way it is. Things are just getting worse and worse. End of story. But is that all that's really going on? Is that the whole story? I mentioned when we were in Cambridge, we had the opportunity to, to reconnect with some longtime friends. And one of those couples is uh, Dennis and... Tina Alexander, they came over and had dinner with us. Dennis is a retired research scientist who's done a lot of writing in the area of faith and science. And when he came over, he brought his latest book. And he he gave this to us and he said, let me tell you the backstory of this book. He looked at me and goes, George, do you remember the 1990s? (laughs) Yes, Dennis, I do. I remember the 90s. He said, do you remember in the 90s? There were a group of atheists that really gained international attention and became best-selling authors. I said, yeah, I I remember that. I remember how scared people were about all of that. And they were even referred to as the new atheists. Perhaps the most famous was a guy named Richard Dawkins, prolific author. And he said, well, I noticed a funny thing a few years ago. He said, when I, I, I was attending a couple of science conferences. And in meeting people and interacting with people, I discovered several people who basically told me the same story, that they had been, they had been drawn into the writings of Richard Dawkins 20 years ago. They'd been kind of attracted and curious to the questions that were being brought up by this new atheism. But that they were, as they were drawn into that, they kept asking questions and they ultimately kept moving until they become followers of Jesus. And he said, I talked with a colleague at Oxford about that, and he had known the same thing. And so we kind of, we started contacting these people, and and the book is basically the story of 12 individuals 
who in different ways were influenced by these atheist authors, but in the course of being influenced, they moved into the realm of being followers of Jesus. The book is actually called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Was there a a rise in interest and international curiosity about atheism beginning in the 1990s? Absolutely. But that's, that's not the whole story. And I think the Apostle Paul makes the very same point in his ministry and letters. A moment ago, I I showed you that big theater, and that theater is a place called Miletus, and somewhere in that community, probably very close to where that theater is currently located, the Apostle Paul said goodbye to leaders in that region, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 20, and in in saying goodbye to those leaders, notice what he says. He says, now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And I think when Paul was talking to these early Christian leaders, at at one level, it's like he's looking around and he's acknowledging the power of Rome. I mean, all you had to do is walk through one of these cities and just see the reminders of, of the power, the authority, the ingenious reality of the Roman Empire. And he's aware of all that. He's aware of all that that reality. He's aware of all the kind of pagan beliefs that come with that. But he looks around and says, but that's not the whole story. God's grace is also at work. So now even in the midst of all that, he says to them, I'm I'm committing you to God's grace. Which can build you up and give you an inheritance. And I think in a similar way, if we were able to sit down and have a conversation with him, at some point he would say the same thing to us. He might sit down and hear part of your life story and, you know, here's what I'm really working on right now. Here's the challenge in front of me. Here's the opportunity in front of me. And for some of us, there's some really heavy stuff going on in our lives like right now. Some relational stuff, family stuff, maybe financial stuff, job-related stuff. And maybe there's something you are carrying right now. And right now, it just it feels like that's all there is. That's all you see. This is the only factor at work. And I think Paul would say to you what he said to those early Christian leaders in Acts chapter 20. I get all the other stuff. And I I don't want to minimize it, but I'm committing you to the work of God's grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance. So with that in mind, uh, this week we're going to begin a three-week series just kind of exploring and unpacking this theme of grace. This theme of God's grace, which it can just kind of permeates the pages of Scripture. And as I, as I introduce that, let me just ask you, what comes to your mind when you hear the word grace? 
I think all sorts of things come to mind. One of the things I've discovered in talking to people this week is we get different questions, you know, like even things like, well, I know we're supposed to live in grace, but how do I do that with other people so they don't take advantage of me? That's a good question. We'll kind of come back to that next week. Maybe when you hear the word grace, it's just, well, grace is getting what I don't deserve. It's a good way to kind of start thinking about grace. For some, we think grace and we think kindness. And maybe really for some of us, if if we're honest, the truth is grace, I'm not, it just kind of, it's it's just this term we use all the time. One person told me this week, she said, um, George, I know we use grace all the time in church and Christian circles, but I'm not really sure what it means. I'm not really sure what we're talking about. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that. That's part of the reason I think it's important for us just to take a couple of weeks to unpack this, particularly as we're preparing for the next academic year and some of the things we're going to be talking about over the next year. Because as it turns out, sometimes the stuff with which we are most familiar also becomes the stuff that is most easily misunderstood. And I think that can be true for us as followers of Jesus when it comes to the concept of grace. And maybe that doesn't seem to be important to you. Maybe it's like, well, I don't know if I know it or not, but what's the big deal? But here's the big deal. Whether you realize it or not, so much of your life right now, your attitudes, your outlook, your decisions, your choices... It's actually being shaped by what you think or don't think about this theme, the theme of God's grace. For instance, let me, let me just show you a statement that Paul makes in the opening part of the letter to Colossae, Colossians chapter 1. Now, in this, this book, he's, among other things, as he starts the letter, he's just celebrating the work of God's grace in the lives of these people, this early group of Christ's followers. And notice what he says. He says, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Now, notice what he's celebrating here. First of all, he's celebrating the fact that, hey, the message of Jesus is spreading. It's spreading. It's spreading. One of the fascinating experiences for me in touring some of these ancient cities was to understand that even architecturally, as you go through the ruins, you can see parts of temples, and then to understand, you know, this temple was actually at one point dismantled because several centuries later, it was rebuilt as a church. So Paul is celebrating, hey, this this message of Jesus is spreading. He's celebrating that. But notice, it's not simply this message is spreading throughout the world. It is bearing fruit just as it has done among you. And when he talks about bearing fruit, I, I think he has kind of a big picture idea. It's not simply, hey, in your community, more and more people are coming to faith. It's also the idea that it is bearing fruit in you personally and relationally. People are growing spiritually. It's affecting them emotionally. It's affecting them relationally. And he'll describe more what that looks like throughout the rest of the letter. 
And then it's interesting, as you continue from verse 6, he then uh, very shortly thereafter moves into a prayer and he's praying that they will continue to grow in their knowledge of who God is. And the language suggests a link with what he's just said. So I think in a real sense, he is praying that they would continue to grow in understanding grace. And his expectation is as you do this, you're going to deepen your understanding of God. It's going to lead to good works. It's going to build resilience and endurance and thankfulness in your life. You're going to be fruitful. But notice, and notice this clearly, here the idea of fruitfulness is specifically linked to grace. Understanding grace. Living in grace. Now, if you see that, if you see this connection between grace and fruitfulness, then the question is, what what happens if we ignore God's grace? What happens when we misunderstand it? What happens when we distort it? Well, we, we don't get this fruitfulness. We get barrenness. We, we don't experience the type of transformation, the type of growth, the type of relationships Paul describes later in this letter. And the tragedy is, and and I really became more convinced of this this summer just through some of the reading and study uh, during my time away, the tragedy is there are all sorts of ways we can misunderstand God's grace. Let me just kind of just quickly walk you through a couple. I think we can misunderstand God's grace, first of all, by doubting it. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ. You're kind of on the outside looking in a little bit. or You're familiar with Christianity, but it's not, you're so, it's not that you're deeply opposed to it. You've just never seen that it applies to you. So maybe you've never come to grips with your need for God's grace. Or maybe you're kind of on the other side of the equation. Maybe there are certain things in your life, your past, and you're just not sure that this could really apply to you when we talk about God's grace. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus. And, you know, it's like I believe in God's grace, but it feels like I've kind of gotten stuck in certain junk in my life, and I just don't see how to move forward I'm not really sure grace applies to me. So I think we can misunderstand it by doubting it. We can also misunderstand it by withholding it. Here's one of the things we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. We're going to see that as we kind of understand God's grace, as we're called to live in God's grace, we're we're also empowered to live it out. 
But it becomes very clear in the pages of Scripture that God's grace is not only to work in us, it's to work through us and affect our relationships. And in different ways, each of us have contributions to make as followers of Jesus to the lives of other people. And that's part of the flow of God's grace. And I'll kind of explain that more next week. And so if I kind of just kind of shrink grace to, well, this just means I'm forgiven... And lose sight of that big picture. If I, if I get comfortable withholding God's grace and not really living in the flow of God's grace, I'm misunderstanding it. And thirdly, I think uh, just another way we can misunderstand God's grace is just by cheapening it, right? Hey, I'm, I'm saved. That's really all that matters. And we kind of look at grace as, well, it's my get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm good. But as we're going to see, grace is so much more than that. Now, at this point, you might, you might be saying, okay, George, I get it. You kind of made the point. We need, to, we need to understand grace. We've got to take this theme seriously. But what exactly do we need to know? Well, I think uh, let's just begin in kind of unpacking this theme with a working definition. I kind of wrestled with this. This is still kind of a work in progress, but if I could really give you a very foundational working definition of grace, it would simply be this. It's the goodness of God in action, right? It's, it's the goodness of God in action towards his people, towards those he has created. And of course, foundationally, that grace is revealed in the work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And as we unpack this over the next couple of weeks, here's what I'd really want you to see. There's, there are different dimensions to God's grace that I think are, are interrelated, working together, but different angles from which we can look at God's grace. And, and so let me just highlight three of them. And this is really what we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks. First of all, grace is radical. Grace is radical. When you understand God's grace, when you kind of come to grips with God's grace, you realize, among other things, grace exposes my deepest need, right? As much as grace sounds nice and comforting and kind, it also confronts me because the reality of God's grace confronts me with my sin, my brokenness. But even in exposing my deepest need, grace provides a solution to that deepest need through the work of Christ, through the gift of his work on my behalf that addresses radically the core of my deepest problem. And in addressing my deepest need, grace transforms my identity at its deepest level. And one of the ways you see that in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul just constantly talking about you're now in Christ. You're now in Christ. This is what defines you. This is who you are. So grace is radical. But not only is it radical, it is also 
relational. And this is what we're going to talk about next week. Grace brings me into a new relationship with God. It restores that relationship. And not only does does grace bring me into a new relationship with God, it also brings me into a new relationship with others. Next next week we'll talk more about what that that looks like and how grace actually transforms our relationships. And thirdly, and this is what we'll talk about in two weeks, not only is grace radical and relational, it's restorative. It's restorative. We're going to see this in the pages of Scripture. See, grace isn't transactional, it's transformational. And we're going to see that God's grace, His goodness in action, can truly restore and heal. Even this week, one person emailed me as we were talking about grace and said, as she has dealt with anxiety, she has learned to lean into God's grace. And she described what that looked like. And she was experiencing the restorative reality of God's grace. So that's what we're going to see over the next several weeks. So very briefly then, let's just start by kind of looking at that first theme, the reality that God's grace is radical. Among other places in Scripture, I think we we see the radical nature of God's grace in the teaching of Jesus. So let me remind you of a very familiar story that Jesus told. Remember, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15. He tells a story of a father who had two sons. And the younger son arrogantly comes and asks for his inheritance, something you just didn't do in the ancient world. So the father divides in his inheritance. The son goes off to a far country and he just, he blows his trust fund, right? He lives irresponsibly in all sorts of ways. Nothing is left. And finally, he comes to his senses. I'm going to go back and maybe dad will at least take me on as a hired hand. And so he comes back. But his dad, dad doesn't welcome him as a hired hand. He welcomes him as a son. But of course, the story gets complicated because even as the dad is doing this, the older brother is struggling with all that is taking place before him. Now, I know we talked about this parable, this story, several weeks ago in our series on the parables. But for a moment, here's what I I want. I want you to kind of look at it from a different angle. And here's what I want you to do. As you hear Jesus tell this story, and it's, you know, it's just, it's a very brief story, but it's a powerful story. As you hear Jesus tell this story, just stand in the audience for a moment. And remember the broader context of the story. The broader context of the story is this. There are Pharisees and religious leaders, uh, Pharisees and scribes that are grumbling about Jesus. And the complaint about Jesus is this. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Now understand, these religious leaders, they would, have, they would have said to you, hey, we believe God is gracious. We believe God is merciful. But I think intrinsically, they also had the expectation that, but you, you need to be worthy of God's grace. 
I mean, things can't get out of hand. If God is just going off willy-nilly, being gracious to people, man, the whole system is chaotic. So they had a certain working assumption that, yes, God is merciful, God is gracious, but but you kind of needed to measure up to be worthy of that. And not surprisingly, then, here's Jesus hanging out with all these other people who just seemed so irresponsible, so unconcerned about their spiritual life, and this, this, this isn't how it should be. Interestingly, one author has noted that whether you and I realize it or not, we often get similar kinds of messages to what these people believed. He said, we get the messages of ungrace. You've got to measure up. And so Jesus tells this story. This story of radical grace. And can I suggest, if you're standing in the audience... If you were part of this group, you may have heard this story differently than you hear it today. Because while it's a short, simple story, as it turns out, the story really has multiple layers of meaning. In fact, a friend of mine in a book that's coming out in a couple of months, Peter Williams, in the book The Surprising Genius of Jesus, points out that For the scribes and the Pharisees who were so familiar with the Old Testament, as Jesus tells this, as Jesus tells this story, they would have heard echoes of other stories from biblical history. I'll just I'll just highlight one for you. Remember in the simple story Jesus tells, the father sees the son coming back to the house. And the father goes running to greet him. And the language used in this is kind of a more literal translation, but the language used is this. He ran, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Now you and I may, oh, so that's what the dad did. Wow, he's really loving his son. But here's how the scribes, I think, would have heard it they would have heard an echo from Genesis 33. Because there's only one other place in Scripture where that language is used to describe someone. The language that he ran, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. It's used in Genesis chapter 33 to describe Esau welcoming his brother Jacob. Now think about that story for a moment. If you remember the history in Genesis, once again, it's a story of two brothers, right? This time it's real brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older brother. Esau is deceived out of his birthright, the privileges that come from being the firstborn. He's deceived out of that by his younger brother, Jacob, and then and the relationship falls apart. But there comes a point where Jacob wants to be restored to his older brother. And we see him making that long journey. We see him wondering, will my older brother receive me? And the reception is one he had no idea would happen. Because his brother 
runs, <laughs> falls on his neck, and kisses him. And interestingly, in that story, we know Esau had his own issues, right? I mean, he was far from perfect. But in that moment, what does Jacob say? Jacob looks to his older brother who has just received him and welcomed him in a way he couldn't imagine. He says, I look at you and I see the face of God. And what Jesus is doing, and this, this really just speaks to the genius of, of Jesus, and I'll commend Pete's book to you highly, but he's, he's kind of subtly layer, layering multiple levels of meaning that perhaps the scribes, are, they're going to be the only ones to pick this up because they know the Hebrew Bible so well, but in building those layers of meaning, he is confronting them with story after story of the radical nature of God's grace. And in layering these multiple stories from the Hebrew Bible into this simple story, in essence, he's looking at them and saying, look, I know. I know you think these other people are unworthy, that they haven't measured up, but but you don't understand God's grace. And I know you feel like in some sense because of your obedience, you are in a privileged position, but you don't understand God's grace. Because all of you need this transforming work that I am bringing out. And all of you, regardless of what your life has looked like, are capable of receiving God's transforming grace. The Apostle Paul would put it this way, right? He has saved us and called us to a holy life, right? And here's the radical part. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now think about this. This is, this is, this is Paul, the guy who said, you know, once... Once I was, I was in that group, once I was one of those guys just striving and working and seeking to excel so that I would measure up. But then I came to understand the radical nature of God's grace. This grace that was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Commenting on the radical nature of God's grace, author John Barclay, who's done some very significant work on this topic, notes that grace is the explosive force that demolishes old criteria of worth. God's grace coming through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the inbreaking reality. that can transform us. So for a moment, here's what I want to do. I just, just for a moment, I just want to invite you to reflect on the radical nature of God's grace. Again, maybe you're 
here, maybe you're joining us online, and you know, the truth is, you, you kind of, you're just, you're intrigued, you're observant of what's going on, but you're not really sure where you stand, and there's a real sense in which you're still on the outside looking in. And if that's where you're at, let me just kind of remind you of these stories in the Bible of of people coming home, right? Jesus tells the story of a son who comes home to the love of his father. And in telling the story of that, he subtly links it to this historical moment in the Old Testament where two brothers are reunited and the younger younger brother comes home. Even as we see these realities in the pages of Scripture, that can be your story as well. To come home to the one who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who has given himself so that you could experience his grace, his goodness goodness in action toward you. The first step is just understanding your need and being willing to come to him in repentance and faith. Maybe you've already started this journey of following Jesus, but right now it's just, it would be helpful for you to think about the radical nature of God's grace as you are kind of working through some of the challenges, responsibilities, opportunities that are in front of you right now. Maybe there are some relational things that are kind of stressful in your life right now, and to say, God, I want to be open to, to your grace. And how your grace can be at work in this situation. Maybe there have been some difficult seasons at work. I mean, the whole economic reality over the last couple of years has really been chaotic for people. And maybe you've kind of gotten caught up in that backwash. And somehow in the midst of that, maybe there's even been just kind of a, a loss of a sense of who I am. You went through a job change and it kind of cut you to the core. And you're wondering, okay, what do I do next? How can I move forward well? And... Somehow you need to come back to the truth of, okay, who I am is ultimately rooted in Jesus Christ. And taking this next step needs to be a step taken with a deepening understanding of who I am in Christ. So I invite you just just right now, just to... Whatever kind of is in front of you right now. For some of us, maybe it's just going back to school. Some of you are teachers. You're getting ready for that. Maybe your families, you know, we're getting transitions ready to kind of change our schedules. And there's busyness and all that. But to, to just, to, I challenge you just to step back for a moment and say, Father, in the midst of what is in front of me right now, I want to live in your Radical grace. And as you think about that, here's the passage I want to leave you with. These words from Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians. He says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us, (laughs) and notice, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts 
and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Wouldn't you like to live in that reality? Wouldn't you like to take next steps as we go into this new academic year in that framework? Well, with that in mind, let let me just pray for you. Let me pray for us. So gracious God, as as we think about this topic, I do just acknowledge we, we kind of throw the word grace around sometimes so flippantly that we lose sight of what it entails. So I I, I want to just thank you right now for the radical nature of your grace. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you that due to the radical nature of your grace, We can be the children who are welcomed home. And Father, in light of the work of your grace, I pray for us as a church community as we're launching into a new academic year. And I pray for us individually. Because I know gathered in this room, we're kind of, our stories at all all sorts of different places. Some of us, there's just great opportunity and There seems to be great positivity in front of us. For others of us, we're just carrying stuff. We're carrying relational stuff. There's stuff going on in our families. Some of us, our jobs have gotten complicated. Some of us, it feels like I I thought I had parenting figured out, and now it's gotten more complicated. And for some of us, God, whatever that, that thing in front of us is, that is all we see. And so I pray even now we would just be open to the work of your spirit who wants to break through that chaos and confusion with the ongoing work of your grace. So I pray that we would be open to that, whatever it looks like. I pray we're going to be open as we talk more about the ways grace changes relationships and grace is restorative. I pray we're going to be more open to to moving in that direction in our lives so that more and more we can be people who are strengthened and encouraged by your grace. And God, I pray these in the name of the one who brings your grace to us, Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us this morning, and I pray you're going to be with us as we kind of, kind of continue this conversation over the next couple of weeks. As you leave, we're going to have members of our prayer team available at front, and we'd love to pray with you, even, even as we've been talking about grace, what that can look like in your life and whatever you're facing. So please just come forward, and we'll be glad to have that time of prayer. Now as you go, and as we begin this series, it's, it's my prayer for us. As a church, it's my prayer for you that we would be people who live in and live out the transforming grace of God.